and you get to celebrate with us every week. This is our party, amen? We got extra sleep. Did everybody get some extra sleep, or you all just stay up an hour later? Come on, you got to get that extra sleep. If someone could help me with this, I have my hands full. Thank you so much. Maybe a brother, thank you. When we look at the, the way the weather changes, this is for me when it's not as fun because I don't have as much daylight. Does anybody else feel like me? You don't have as much daylight. So it's like bittersweet. It's like, thank you, brother. You get a little bit extra sleep for one day, one day, and then you lose sunlight like for like five months. So it's like, it's, you know, it's kind of weird like that. But I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy the one day. But I will say this, that for me, exercise. Let me say exercise. Exercise really, really, really helps me when I don't see the sun a lot, okay? And having family that retired in Florida, where I'll be going in a couple of weeks, and then I try to go in the middle of the winter as well for my birthday in January. But do some exercise, you know? Keep your body flowing. Don't get those, those de- depression times, seasonal depression. If you do, we'll pray for you and help you, and doctors are there. But uh, I know we're entering into the fall season. I'm hoping for snow by Thanksgiving. Anybody else hoping for snow? Come on. See, now I switch from uh, snow... Uh, I've switched from wakeboarding to snowboarding, dude. So I need the snow now. I don't care about the, the lake or the river anymore. I need, I need snow. So I need it now, and I need it quickly. So you all start praying, okay? And then we'll, we'll let you know when it's too much. But right now, a good foot would be good. How many remember a few years ago at Halloween, we got about, what, six inches of snow? Does anybody remember that? I was praying for that this year, kind of. No, I'm kidding. Open up your Bibles with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 3. That's about as uh, lighthearted as we're going to be now for the rest of the service. Y'all ready for some serious Bible talk? Y'all can handle it? Amen. I, I, I'm a good pastor. I literally did that just for you. That, that, like three minutes right there, that was for you. Now, I know some of you are like, Pastor, I don't need all that. Just give it to me and give it to me raw. Okay. But there are some of you who come to church, you're going through hard times, you need to see me smile, you need to know that I have a life outside of this building, my children and I, we love the Lord, we have fun, but we're getting to some serious stuff now. Y'all ready? Okay, we want to know what the title of the message is, Don't Harden Your Heart. Hebrews chapter 3 is the second warning of Paul the Apostle, who I believe is the author of this epistle. The church has debated it for years. That's up to you how you see it. So if you hear me describing this coming from Paul, that is why church history seems to affirm that I'm on their side. This message that we get is the second of five warnings. I have a link to the five warnings there on a Bible college paper that I wrote where I go into more depth if this is something that interests you. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people. They are more than likely Christians because of how often he refers to them as brothers. This term brothers now in our newer versions, like you'll see in the NIV, includes sisters. So the sisters are getting some some attributes here in the new uh, translations. How many sisters do I have in the house today? Amen. And the reason why the translators do that, go ahead and scroll down just a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters. Now go back up. Just want you guys to see it there. The reason why they do that is because if you know in our vernacular, we can say, hey, you guys. And in that vernacular, do I mean just literal physical guys? 
Okay, and so what uh, scholars have said over the years is that obviously there were women in these congregations, and he would be addressing them as well, the authors would. And uh, so they look back into the history, and they began to come up with ideas like, hey, does Adolfoi, you know, the plural here of Adolfos, uh, brother, does it include also a, a variety of people? Is it only men, or does it include women? So that's why they do that. Now, you can get mad at me and say I read out of the non-inspired version, the NIV, and you want to be uh, King James only or something. And that's okay. I've been there. I've been there. But uh, I just want you to hear it does apply to women. Can I hear an amen? Okay. So women and men do not harden your heart. Five warnings here. The first one that we just went through was a warning against drifting away. Now, let me just say this because I will have to spend a lot of time on it, and I want you to know my motivations. I'll show you my cards right at the beginning. No tricks up my sleeve. I believe a Christian can lose their salvation. Okay? I don't believe you lose it like my wife loses her phone and I have to do the where's my phone app every five minutes of the day. Pray for her, six kids, and me as a husband. Okay, But you don't lose it like that, but you can walk away from it. I make that argument from each one of these warnings and collectively. As I mentioned when we went through Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 3, I said, here is the other way of looking at it. Those who do not believe you can lose your salvation, here's how they see it. And I gave you a few different options. One of the options is that he is writing to Jewish people. So when he says, and just give them that scripture again, for some reason it's a popular one today, Hebrews 3 verse 1, going to it again. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, they will say that sharing in the heavenly calling is according to the Judaism, their Jewish ethnic background. Background. So he is calling them brothers and sisters and say they share in a heavenly calling. That's just Jews by ethnicity, their, their ethnic background. This is not brothers and sisters as those in Christ. And uh, that this would make sense if it didn't go on and say about a hundred other things that have to do with these brothers and sisters actually being Christians and the entire letter being addressed towards Christians who are going to get rebuked for not being mature Christians. How many have read the book of Hebrews before? So you just can't say he's talking generic to his Jewish people. Also, you will find words like our apostle and our high priest in the same verse. And how many know the ethnic Jew who has not received the Mashiach, who has not received the, the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, do not consider Jesus to be an apostle or a high priest. Right? So it contradicts them in the very same verse and the entire context of Hebrews starting from the introduction. The other thing that they say is they go, uh, Pastor, we get it. Uh, he is talking to Christians. We're not going to try to go the route of he's talking to Jews by ethnic identity. He is talking to Christians, but scroll up, please, for the five warnings. None of these warnings can actually happen. This is somewhat similar to like uh, your mom getting mad at you and say, boy, you better stop before I slap you into next week. It is very true that you are her boy, you are her son or daughter, and it's very true that she wants to slap you. But is she going to slap you into next week? That is not going to happen. But the warning serves a purpose. Stop what you're doing. And so what the other option is, is that people say, hey, these are Christians. They're being warned, and they're being told a bunch of bad things can happen to them in judgment, as in hellfire, drifting away from God, 
being on the outside of the kingdom, having a hard heart, and uh, being cast out because of unbelief like the Jewish people were during the time of Moses, which we'll be getting into. But if you are truly a Christian, it will not happen, but you'll take the warning serious. Everybody go, nice try. It's a nice try. They will have one verse, just one insy bitsy verse today that can help them in that quest. There are not many of them throughout these warnings. And so the overwhelming evidence supports what I'm saying. But if you're just comparing based on evidence, we, we win in that way. But there's also a problem with that view because the very ones that are being warned are said to have been lost and they once knew Jesus. And the language of those who are going to be described in Hebrews 6 and 25, if those are not real Christians, we have a problem, and if they're not really walking away, we have a problem. But today we will uh, reconcile one of their verses that basically say, hey, this is not really going to happen to a Christian, because the ethnic Jew argument I don't think is really worth our time after I've described some of those things to you. So the rest of the warnings are going to be coming up. We'll have a break after this one into chapters, uh, you know, four and five, and then we'll get into six, and then Hebrews 10 warning, which is very popular in this church. How many have heard the warnings of Hebrews 10, 26 in this church quite a bit? For if we go on willfully sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there therefore remains no more sacrifice for sins. That's one of this pastor's life verses, okay? The reason why it is is because y'all try to be living in sin a lot and call yourself a Christian. And I go, Hebrews 10, 26 says you can't do that. And so it applies to me as well. Trust me, I better live right or I will be punished. And it applies to, you know, anybody. But I, as a pastor, I love that life first because I like to draw the line in the sand to say, stop, quit it. I rebuke you. That's a way of saying it. Because if you continue in this, you're in a lot of trouble. And that's why we should take that warning serious. Let's go now to, of course, we take all of them serious, but I also think we should take them literal, not just something that could possibly happen. Now, going to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, if you're there, somebody say, I'm there. Okay, wonderful. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. I'll read it all through today, and then we'll go back verse by verse. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken, what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. Let me say, we are his house. Amen. Thank you. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. That's an important part to remember of what I just talked about. Verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. Did he want to tickle them or was he angry? He was angry. Make sure you serve a God that can get angry. Jesus is angry at times. Don't serve a God that's only just lollipops singing in the rain. You have to understand this is a part of our Bible. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my what? 
Anger, God made a promise in anger. They shall never enter my rest. The last few verses here, please, verses 12 and onward, give the warning. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Note that Greek word there. We'll be talking about that later. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original conviction firmly to the end. That verse with the other one I asked you to keep mind of has to do with what we talked about before. Verse 15, as has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Verse 19, please highlight it. Let's read it together. One, two, three. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Thank you. Let's go back now to verse 1. How many can see the seriousness of this? Very intense, very serious. So I want to offer you a message. Do not harden your heart in that same seriousness because I care about each and every one of you. We live in a time where people are apostatizing. They are turning away from Christ in record numbers. This is primarily in America and in Europe. The other parts of the world, even Latin America, as well as Asia, Southeast Asia, and in different parts of the Middle East, Iran particularly, Christianity is exploding and growing. But as far as as our culture is concerned, where we are today in God-blessed America, there is a great falling away. Oftentimes, people try to reconcile this with the different things that they see in that person's life. Oh, they never really liked going to church. They just went there because their parents made them to. Or they were confirmed as a Catholic, but you know what? They always wanted to do their own thing. And so we make up a lot of these excuses to cover over it. But let's just be honest. It is an epidemic. There are people, real people, who had real experiences with God that have walked away. How many would say, you know, one or two like that? How many would know three or four, if not more? Not everybody that I see that has walked away from God was just somebody going through the motions, going to church because they were raised that way, or just because they felt like they needed to do it to fit in. No, I know some real people who loved God who raised their hands in church, who did everything we just did together, took communion together, uh, sang songs unto God, wept in God's presence, and I have seen them turn their back on Jesus, walk away from the Lord. Once again, how many know somebody like that? Okay? Now you and I have to explain that to the world. Now you can take the easy way out and you can say, well, I believe you were never truly a Christian to begin with. I don't think that's a good route to take. Because then you have just insulted them and everything they've gone through in their life, and you've basically said, you're just a liar, liar, pants on fire. So I wasn't a Christian. No, you weren't a Christian. But I confessed Jesus as Lord. Well, that didn't really count. Well, I took communion and believed it was his body and blood, not literally, but spiritually. I put Jesus as all, I put him as everything in my heart. I put him first in everything I did. Well, you didn't do it good enough. So I wasn't a Christian. No, well, then how do you know anybody else in your church is a Christian? That's what they'll say back to you if you go that route. 
Man, if I wasn't a Christian, then how do you know you're a Christian? Okay, does everybody get that? This argument comes up. I don't go that route. I go this route, Hebrews chapter 3. This is what I say to them. I say, you probably were a Christian. I don't know your story, and I believe there are false converts in the Bible, and we can point to those. But I don't have to argue with them about whether or not they were truly a convert or a a false convert. I can go to this scripture right here, and I can say, it sounds like your heart was made hard. Now, you may think to yourself, well... That could still make the point of them not being a convert, Pastor. Maybe they heard the gospel, went to church, went through the motions, but it was never real. Yes, but listen, if they did that, was not their heart still hard? According to the Bible, how are sinners' hearts brought into this world? Soft or hard? The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, as we'll get into specifically, is that sinners come into a world, into this world, separated from God. We're born in sin. David said, surely in my mother's womb I was shapen in iniquity. So how could we say to them, the warning, you will get a hard heart if their heart was already hard to begin with as a sinner? How do I warn somebody who's drowning about drowning? You're already there. How do I warn a sinner about a hard heart when they already have one? Doesn't seem to make sense, does it? And I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. I believe Hebrews teaches us that those who once had soft hearts can now have hard hearts. And so in speaking with our friends and speaking with backsliders, we need to help them point to the places in their life where they rebelled against God and allowed their heart to get hard and then were cut off, which is another one of our warnings that we'll get to, because of unbelief. It's not necessarily because of their sin. How many Christians here have sinned before? Are you still a Christian? Yes, so the sin doesn't make you a non-Christian. Oftentimes people point back to Adam and Eve and say it was the sin that caused them to fall and put them in a spiritually dead state in which now we are born into as the human race. That is true. Please have Ephesians 2 ready for me, please, in verse 1. But their sin bringing them death did not transfer to us in guilt because we did not sin like them. We do not become guilty of our sin, the Bible says, until we have the law. Without law, there is no guilt or attribution of sin towards us. You can look this up in Romans, and maybe I will because some of you are giving me confused looks. The conscience provides a law, and so does the Word of God. And so God will not convict us of sin or condemn us on Adam's sin, though we're put under his curse. We will not be convicted and condemned by his sin. We'll be convicted by our own sin. This is why I believe the kingdom of God belongs to children. That's why Adam's, uh, David's child, when he perished, he said, I, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. This speaks towards an age of innocence, and we can talk about that throughout the scriptures, and when the age of accountability comes in other nations and how they're dealt with. That is a different conversation, but just track with me here. The deadness that we face in sin does not mean we all sin alike and are all guilty alike. Your guilt on the day of judgment will be, mine if I was not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, will be according to your sins. Now, being in that dead state, separated from God, what is the condition of our heart? Also open up Ezekiel chapter 36, start around verse 24, please, and then we'll get into the Ephesians passage. Keep these open. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the 
promise of the new covenant is that God will take out the heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh. Can I hear an amen? The heart of flesh is the regenerated, born-again heart. Ezekiel 36, round verse 24. This new heart, keep scrolling down, I might be off. There it is. Yeah, it is verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into the land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be what? Clean. I will cleanse you from how many of your impurities? All. And for how many of your idols? All. Thank you. I will give you a what? A new heart and put a what? New spirit in you. What removes here? I will remove from you your heart of what? Stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of what? Heart of flesh. Go to Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1. As, as for you, you were dead in what? Transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, that hard heart. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, remember, you choose to follow the devil. The devil doesn't make you follow him. You chose to do that. So you followed the ways of your heart in this world and came under the authority, we all did as sinners, under the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, what, deserving of wrath. Okay, so now, even though we had in our mother's womb not sinned and deserved wrath, Adam's curse upon us led us to sin and then deserve wrath. Can I hear an amen? You don't deserve sin by being a, uh, deserve wrath by being a baby in a womb. These are different understandings of, uh, of how we had our, our sin and the causation of sin, okay? And so I'm giving you the best way I can explain the Bible. Some people believe uh, children are worthy of wrath simply because of what Adam did. But I believe they're under Adam's curse, but not suffering wrath. I believe that is very distinct. I believe wrath has to do with your personal behavior. I don't believe anybody gets wrath from God unless you personally have sinned. Can I hear an amen to that? It's just if you're tracking with me, okay? Now, going to Hebrews. What does it say about these people? Scroll down there for me, please. We'll get to Christ and his exalted nature as the builder of God's house in just a moment. But I want you to understand this. Today, verse 7, if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your heart. According to the Bible, what do sinners already have? Hardened hearts. And sinners who sin are worthy of wrath because they have sin breaking God's law, right? Okay, so that's, that's what I'm trying to share with you here. Could this possibly be referring to a sinner then? No, because a sinner already has that hard heart. A sinner is already in rebellion towards God by very nature, following their flesh and the powers of this world. Who is the one being warned? A Christian, a believer, someone who has put their trust in God. Now we have to ask ourselves, what does this trust look like? What does it manifest like? How would I know if I'm actually a true believer? Now let's go to the beginning and kind of work our way back. So he says to them, brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, in the context here, are they simply sharing in their Judaism or in the calling of being in Christ, having their sins washed away, seated in heavenly places? They're in heavenly places with Christ. That is their heavenly calling. Let's just go back to Ephesians 2, please. When you are saved, what does he do? Because, starting, uh, continuing on rather in verse 4, but because of, his, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been what? Saved. Thank you. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in where? 
heavenly realms in what? Christ Jesus. So going back to Hebrews, I'm not doing Bible hopscops, you know, am I? I'm, I'm teaching you context, right? I just want to make sure everybody's tracking with me because sometimes, you know, you can listen to a Jehovah Witness hopscotch through the Bible and be like, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, you can listen to people like that, but that's, that's not what I'm doing. Does everybody see I'm staying within the context of these verses and I'm staying within the subjects of these verses? In other words, they have subjects. The subject of Ezekiel is that you either have a hard heart or you have a soft heart. Who would you warn about getting a hard heart to? The one that already has a hard heart or the one that has a soft heart? The soft heart. That's the one you would give the warning to. The one with a hard heart, you would rebuke for having a hard heart. You would tell them, stop having a hard heart. You wouldn't warn them about getting a hard heart. You would rebuke them for having a hard heart. Does everybody see that? Okay. You wouldn't warn a person being obedient against, or excuse me, you wouldn't warn a person being rebellious against turning rebellious. You would warn an obedient child against rebellion because you don't want them to stop in their obedience. You don't say, hey, I, um, you know, like some teenager out there being wild selling drugs. Hey, I, I want you to take serious about being rebellious. You know, I'm warning you. If you keep this up, you're going to be rebellious. They're going to look at me and be like, am I not doing my job good as a delinquent here? Like, I thought I was pretty rebellious already. Now I can warn him or her about the consequences of their rebellion. Hey, you're rebellious and these are the consequences. But I wouldn't warn them about the action of, of rebellion. You're already in rebellion. Here, what are these people in? Are they in rebellion with a hard heart? No, they're sharing in the heavenly calling seated in heavenly places with Christ. They're being told they can fix their thoughts on Jesus. Can sinners fix their thoughts on Jesus? No, go to Romans chapter 8. The mind of the flesh is what sinners have. They're in the realm of the flesh. You have the Spirit of God. You can mind the Spirit of God. You can set your minds on the things of God. Go to uh, chapter 8 verse 5, please. Those who live according to the flesh have their what? Mindset on what the flesh desires. Now look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the what? Spirit. So going back to the Hebrews warning, fix your thoughts on Jesus, you wicked sinner. I don't know how. I don't have the spirit. That would make no sense, would it? But if I say to you as a Christian, fix your thoughts on Jesus, does that make sense? It does. And then the last thing, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Oftentimes we think of apostles only being the 12 that Jesus had minus Judas replaced with Paul or Matthias, depending on how you look at it. But look here, Jesus is called an apostle. So an apostle must mean more than just what we think it does. It doesn't just mean disciple. Disciple actually means follower. Apostle is someone sent. How is Jesus our apostle? Because we believe God so loved the world that he sent. He apostolion, he sent. That's the Greek word, apostolios, is the word meaning for sent. He is our apostle. Jesus was sent for us, and he's our high priest. In other words, if you want to know whether or not you were a true Christian and you're a backslider now, or just you're wanting to know if you're a true Christian to have confidence, do you believe these things? Do you believe that you share in the brotherhood and the family of Jesus Christ today? Do you have in your heart heaven, and have you been placed in heavenly realms? Has there been a transformation? Do you 
Fix your thoughts on Jesus and find joy in doing so. And have you acknowledged that he came for you as your apostle? And what did he do as an apostle for us? Was our savior, death, burial, and resurrection would be all inherent in that. And likewise, he's your high priest. He not only, he not only offers himself as a sacrifice, but as we'll see in the book of Hebrews, he is, he's not only the sacrifice, but he's the one offering the sacrifice. Can I get an amen? Okay, do you believe that? Well, then you're a Christian for as far as much as I know. Okay, I don't know any other way to ask you if you're a Christian. Have you cried at the altar? <laughs> Have you seen the passion of the Christ and felt little warm feelings? You know, do you read your Bible five minutes a day or ten minutes a day? Do you pray for an hour? Do you speak in tongues? Do you uh, run around the church when you get excited? Like, do you get what I'm saying? There's nothing else I can ask you after that. So at this point, when I talk to people... I can maybe, you know, they tell me that they've backslidden. I can maybe ask them some of these questions. Hey, what was your walk with God like? Did you feel like you were in the family of God? And if they say, yeah, why would I doubt them, right? And then I say, did you feel like heaven was on the inside of you? Like, did you believe you were seated in heavenly places with Christ? you believe you were saved and changed? Oh, yeah. Did you used to fix your thoughts on Jesus? Would you put your thoughts on God? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. And did you believe Jesus was your Savior sent? You don't have to probably say apostle. That will throw him off. But do you believe Jesus was sent by God to die on the cross, be buried, raised again? Yeah, yeah. And do you believe when you were a Christian, did you believe he was your high priest, that he was always interceding to you before the Father and that by his blood you could receive forgiveness and communion was a part of remembering what he did for you? If they say yes, at that point, to deny them being a Christian is basically to say there is no such thing as a Christian. You will then fall for the error of the no true Scotsman fallacy. The true, no true Scotsman fallacy is, is said like this. It's, uh, well, if you're Scottish, you'll never put cream in your coffee, okay? And then a guy goes, hey, I'm Scottish, and I put cream in my coffee. And then somebody says back, yeah, but you're not really a true Scotsman. Do you see how that works? So anybody who doesn't agree with you, you're now saying they're not really such and such a thing. And that's a fallacy because now definitions don't mean anything. If, if by the definition you started at the beginning, no Scotsman puts cream in their coffee. If a Scotsman is someone born in Scotland, this guy's born in Scotland and puts cream in his coffee. So you either deny the actual fact that this dude is a Scotsman, you know, you deny that and say, well, you're not really a Scotsman, or you stop making that statement, no Scotsman put cream in their coffee because you just met one. You just met someone right here who is a Scottish person, and he put cream in their coffee. Did everybody get that? Can I get an Amen. Okay, now, you can say, well, theologically, I don't believe Christians can lose their salvation. You can say that theologically based on other passages. You and I can have a fun debate. Here's the only thing. If we debate, you're taking me to where? Red Lobster, your treat. You do most of the talking. I do most of the eating, okay? And then you can try to convince me of your ways. Mm, okay, I never saw that scripture before. Please pass me that lobster. This is how you debate with your pastor. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, no. We can do it another way. But if we did it that way, trust me, it would be a lot more fun. And if, 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 you, if you say that, now you have to speak to this person and go, well, you weren't really a Christian, even though you did everything Christians are supposed to do, and you've just pretty much entered into the realm of the conversation stopper. At that point, you can try to teach them how to become a real Christian and start the whole thing over again. And I'm not doing this out of pragmatism. I'm just saying it doesn't fit with the context of Scripture. I would say, even if you're here and you don't believe a Christian can lose their salvation, at least after 
act like they did something that was really genuine and now they don't have that anymore and use this passage as a guide. I'm not saying be fake. I'm just saying use it as a guide because it will help you to actually communicate to them. Now, moving past your application of this in ministry, I want to talk to every single one of you. Because how many of you believe your brothers and sisters with Jesus? You're a brother or sister to Jesus. Come on. How many of you share in the heavenly calling? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. How many of you have acknowledged he was sent for you to be your savior and he's your high priest? Then this warning is for you now. Enough about your friend. It's about you. It's about me. It's about my family and those who I definitely believe are Christians. Read on now with me in verse 2. He was faithful, talking about Jesus, to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Here we see God being used of as the Father. We know it's the Father because of chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, please. It's going to be helpful now, because otherwise you're going to come into contradictions and uh, miss the idea of the triune God in our scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1 is very clear. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, this is verse 1, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his what? Son. Okay? So the person we hear being called God cannot be the Son. Does everybody get that? Because that person being called God has a Son. Okay? If I have to get out the whiteboard, I'll get out the whiteboard. But let's just start slow here. The one talking to the son cannot be the son, right? I might have to slow it down. I need, either you guys are tired, you got too much sleep, or you guys aren't following me because I need you to follow me now. Because if you don't, you're not going to understand about three or four verses I have to go through. Let's go very slow. And then those of you who are not used to churches where we talk back, I always tell our folks, this is not a Presbyterian church. It's a Pentecostal church. Amen? Okay, so I need you to help me because this helps me know where we're at in this conversation. So there is this person right here being called God. Amen? And he's talking to the people. And now he's using this person called the son to talk to people. Does everybody get that? My question was a very simple one, but it needs to be said. Is the person being called God here, is that person the son? No, it's not the son. So we have eliminated oneness theology. Oneness theology wants to say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one person that show up at different times in different modes. So today, here's Joe, one person as your, fa- uh, as your pastor, not Father, <laughs> not Father Tom here. Uh, but then I go home, because I was thinking fast, you know, and I have all in my head right here. And then I go home with my wife, and I'm a father to my kids and a husband to my wife. There are things I do with my wife I don't do with my kids. Can I hear an Amen. Okay, some real no father's Tom Tom stuff going on here, okay? And I know that sounds like it was hurtful, but we needed to hear that. Father Tom stuff needs to get exposed in the Catholic Church. Keep doing it, Jesus, okay? Now, I am with you as a pastor, but I'm not your daddy, okay? But it's still Joe. I'm with my wife as a husband, but I'm not her daddy in that way, right? And then I'm with my kids as their daddy, but I don't do marriage stuff with them, and I don't do all the pastor stuff with them. Can I hear an amen if you're tracking? That's what the oneness person says. God is sometimes a father. God is sometimes a son. God is sometimes the Holy Spirit. Hey, look at the baptism. He can do all three at the same time. That's what they want to say. That makes no sense according to what Hebrews just said in the first couple of verses. There is someone we know as God, and he is using someone we now know is the son. 
How do we know who that person of God is? How do we know who that person is? Keep scrolling down, please. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did this person we just know is God, who is not the Son, say this? You are my Son. Today I have become your what? Father. So that person we have heard as God talking to the Son is the is the Father. They're not the same person. Amen? They're not the same. Per- they're not talking to each other. I don't say to myself, and I've begotten you, Joe, as my son. That's not what they're doing. The Father is saying, I have begotten you as my son. Now, a Jehovah Witness goes, that's amazing. That's what we've been saying the whole time. You see, there's the Father, Jehovah God, and then at some point, he makes Jesus God, a lowercase g God, and now him in that lowercase g God is like an angel, but not an angel, is who he uses now to do all these good things upon the planet. Is that what Hebrews is telling us? No, it's saying that the Son has been there from the beginning. Go back up now to the attribute of the Son. And I'll show you how to understand the begetting of the Son, but just contradict them in the very verses before that. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, or in the Greek, character of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So he's exactly like the Father. And then one more verse above, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made what? The universe. If Jesus is the creator of all things, can he be a created thing? He cannot be a created thing. If Jesus made everything created, can he be in that, uh, that, that category of created things? No, because he creates everything. Who is the only one we learn about in the Bible that creates everything and is uncreated? God. But now we learn God is also persons. God is a nature and he's also persons. God is in nature, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere at the same time. But he's in personality, a father that is distinct from the son. We see them talking and then in a few verses we'll see the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? Now going to the begetting of the son. If you ask a Jehovah Witness or anyone that denies Jesus' eternality and equality with the father, you ask them, how long has God been a father. And the Bible says everlasting father, does it not? So can you be a father without a son? No, the Bible says in Micah, the son has been begotten from the father from eternity, time without end or time without beginning, and he will always be that time without end. He is in a static state, an unchanging state of being begotten, sent forth from the father. There has never been a time where the father has not had the son proceeding from him. And then the Bible says the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son. So it's like one river producing two streams, and the rivers have always existed in that stream. Those persons have existed like that. There's never been a time where the Father's not been a father. To be a father, he's always had a son. And the Father and Son have never, there's never been a time where the, uh, the Spirit has not been proceeding from the, uh, the, the Father and the Son. This, proce- this procession, this begetting does not mean creating. Just because someone is proceeding from doesn't mean they're created by. The Bible never says that Jesus is created. Go to Colossians chapter 1, please. I'll show you when it says he's the firstborn of creation. That's different than saying that Jesus is created. How many know there's a difference? Okay. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Go to chapter 1, verse 15. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Somebody goes, well, that's there, that's right there. It says he was created. No, keep going. It says, for in him all things were created. <laughs> you see how we run into that contradiction within the same passage, within the, like the next verse? If he created everything, can he be himself a creature? Everybody say no. Help me get through this. Otherwise, we'll be here for a long time. I'm just going to help you now. It's like puppeteer through you. Say no. If you don't say no, you have to understand or you have to come up with another explanation of what it means to create all things and yourself be created. I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to trick you. For in him, all things were created. Well, it says right above that he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, whatever that means, firstborn of creation, it cannot mean he had a point where he was created. Because the very next verse says the word all. And guess what the word all means in Greek? All. That means nothing outside of it. Okay? If he's created all things, whatever you and I think firstborn means, it cannot mean created. But if you're not careful, people will run that by you very quickly and then change the words and then say firstborn means created. So in other words, they'll interpret it like this. The son is the image of the invisible God, the first created being of his creation. They will put two words of created there. He's the first created thing of all creation. But it doesn't have created twice. It says he is the firstborn, nothing to do with creation, firstborn over all creation. Do you all see that? It doesn't say he's the first creation over creation. That's where they try to slip it in. And if you're not careful, it will go by you and you'll believe it. You'll be like, well, I, well, I guess I don't, I don't know what to say now. Just read the very next verse. Because when you talk about created things, where do they come from? In him. They come from in him. In him we live, move, and have our being, as, as Paul quoted one of their poets. For in him all things were created. How many things? All things. And where are they? Things in heaven. Where would Jesus be created if the Father first created him? He would be in heaven. But guess what? He made all things in heaven. God made heaven. Where was, where was uh, all these things before God created? In God. As potential, okay? So we're, we can mess them up even more than that. We, we asked them, where did he even put them? If, if he, because they say, well, it's all other things. So you'll see that in their translation. Then you have to ask them, so, so Jesus created heaven then. Yes, God created Jesus, and then Jesus made heaven. Well, then where would you put Jesus? Where would the Father even put Jesus? You can't put him in any place but heaven or earth. That's the only realms that we have. Are you listening? So he makes him and puts him where? See, it makes no sense. The Bible says it's in him, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are in the same nature. And so before there was a heaven, there's Father, Son, and Spirit. Before there is an earth, Father, Son, and Spirit. So for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Because remember, Jesus would be an invisible thing in heaven. But remember, heaven didn't exist yet. So it cannot mean what they think it means. Keep reading. It will tell you what it means. I wish I could test some of you guys and go, do you know what it means? Have you read the Bible before? But it's, it's not one of those days, is it? I might be disappointed. Some of you would know. How many of you would know the answer to this? How many know where I'm already going? Be careful when you raise your hands in church. I might call. Okay, some of you already know. Amen. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Watch here, verse 17. He is before all things. How can he be a created thing if he's before all things? Another contradiction. And in him, all things hold together. How could he create himself and then hold himself together? It would not make sense. Now, look at verse 18. It's a sandwich. There are two 
buns and the passage uh, is the meat in the middle. The first bun is where you hear the mention of firstborn. The second bun, the bottom bun, is the second mention of firstborn, and that's where it brings the clarity after the meat in the middle. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So what is he the firstborn over? How is he the firstborn over all creation? He is the first one to get the glorified state. Not even Elijah, who was uh, taken to heaven, or Enoch, has what Jesus has. Jesus will then disperse it to everyone and everything. The creation even groans now, and it will get glorification at the time of Christ's return. Amen? And then if it couldn't be more clear, verse 19 concludes, if you walk away from this passage thinking he's anything other than God in nature, you've missed the whole point. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So can you have all the fullness of God and not be equal with God? No, it doesn't make any sense. So if all the fullness of the Father, who we know that's the person being discussed here from the previous verses, is in Jesus, then he must be equal with the Father. Have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, I I believe, or in heaven. Scroll down for me. Or on the cross. Good thing we have the Bible here today. I just made up some extra verses there. Through his blood shed on what? Shed on what? Y'all ain't following me. I messed you up too bad. By making peace through his blood, shed on what? The cross. Thank you. Going back to Hebrews. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. So we know, going to the notes, please. That will help you. Oh, sorry. You're right. It's not in the notes. That was my bad. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. You're doing awesome. Okay. So we know that the Father and the Son are two separate persons. We cannot say they're different in nature, so we're not Jehovah Witnesses or people that believe God creates another God. We're not oneness like Marcus Rogers on Facebook or these other oneness preachers that we meet every now and then that say the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all the same person just doing different modes. No, we see that they are different persons, but they're equally God. Now, go ahead. Let's keep scrolling down. How do we know that this one is God? Because in speaking of the angels, he says, or excuse me, verse 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels what? Worship him. He receives worship. Now keep going here. The father speaking about the son, it's the same one speaking, but about the son, he, that he is God, the father, about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The Father calls the Son God. Amen? Now, where's the Holy Spirit? Scroll down just a little bit more. A little bit more. Um, Keep going. Oh, let's go back up. I missed it. Uh, Which one? Keep going. It's not this one. He also says, your throne, oh God, keep on going up. But about the Son, brings his firstborn into the Son. Ten. Thank you. I missed it. You guys are good. Thank you. He says, Lord, no, he calls him Lord. Where's the Holy Spirit right there? Go, scroll down a little bit. I thought I had it here. Give me just a moment, and then we'll go to chapter 3. I just want you to see the Holy Spirit. It may be in chapter 2. Sometimes I uh, do this. Uh, I get them confused. How many, how many remember when I said um, in Hebrews, when he quotes the Scripture, he goes, somewhere someone said. Do you remember when I brought that up? No, you guys don't remember that? Go to chapter 2. I'm going to show you this. But hold on just for, no, it actually says spirit. If it doesn't say spirit, it's going to be in the next chapter. Go into chapter 2, and I want to show you why I was saying what I was saying. Chapter 2. Okay, now go up a little bit for me, please. Let's go at the beginning of chapter 2. Keep going. 
Okay, this uh, came from attention that we do not escape. Here we go, verse 4. God also testified to it, talking about the testifying of Jesus as Lord, because that's what he is. This salvation was first announced by the Lord, right? So Jesus is Lord. It's announced by him, and it was confirmed by those who heard him. Verse 4, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of what? The Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So I was a few verses off, but it's right there in the same context. Now, since I said that thing about um, the author, let's keep going down. Uh, let's keep going here. Another thing under his feet. Keep going. I don't have this one memorized. It's going to be in this passage somewhere. Keep going. Keep going. Stop right here. Okay, I missed it. Is it verse 6? Go up to verse 6 then. Let's see. Let's see here. Uh, yes, highlight verse 6 and you'll feel my pain right here. But, but there is a place. This is inspired scripture, by the way. But there is a place where someone has testified. That's his way of going through the scripture. He doesn't say the exact chapter and the exact verse. Okay, you, you get what I'm going to A little pastor joke there, I guess. Okay. So if, he, if, if God can inspire scripture while the guy is writing, go somewhere somebody said. Okay, now going back to Hebrews chapter 3. That's how God humbles people who think uh, that they know it all, right? We don't. We all trust in Jesus here. Okay. Now, what have we learned? We have learned that these are Christians. These are people who are in the family of God. They're not just ethnic Jews that are being called brothers and sisters. Jesus said, who's my father, or who's my mother, brother, and sister, those who do the will of God. That's the context of why Christians use that terminology. They have a heavenly calling. They're able to fix their eyes on Jesus. That means they have the Holy Spirit. They have acknowledged Jesus as the sent one, their savior, and as their high priest. Now listen in verse 2. He, talking about Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus, now watch this, has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has a greater honor than the house itself. Who does the author, uh, the author attribute to building the temple? Jesus, and that makes him God. God is Jesus. God is the Father. God is the Holy Spirit. They're not all the same person, but they can all have the same attributes. Jesus is said to be greater than Moses. Why is he greater than Moses? Because he's the builder of the house. Amen? That's why he's worthy of greater honor. Now, verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Someone might say, well, Joe, that's that's that generic title, God, there. It could refer to the Father. Very true. But what does the context tell us? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us the Son makes everything, does it not? Go back to Hebrews chapter 1 so we can take it slow. Hebrews chapter 1, who made everything? Go up to the beginning, please. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his what? Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made what? The universe. So that means he's made everything. And then how many things does he sustain? All things. Now going back to Hebrews chapter 3. I believe this reference that God is the builder of everything is referring to Jesus Christ. I'm not the only one that sees that. The reason is, is because we're told that Jesus is the greater one than Moses. Why is he greater than Moses? Because he built the house that Moses served in. Amen. Okay, we're going to get to the warning in just a moment, but I want to make sure that you see that. Now, in 1 Chronicles 29, 16, we're taught that the temple belonged to God. God 
God's, te- God's house was that temple. Jesus treated that as his own, and he called it his father's house. So Jesus must have equality with the father to go into that house and do whatever he wants. Can my son take care of my house? Yes, he can. My son can take Somebody's like, well, now technically, we're pastor. We don't want to get in trouble, so not now. But guys, can he not take care of my house? Yes, he can. If something's dirty there, can he now, as a 10-year-old, clean it up? Okay, yes, that's all my point was. Okay, but thank you for being technical with me. This is good. You're keeping me in check. I get it. I get it. Not a lot of grace going around here today. That's okay. I reap what I sow. So my 30-year-old son, can he take care of my house? Yeah, Okay. Because he has equality with me, we share in the same nature and we bear the same name. What is the same name that we bear? Why Rostic? How are we equal? We're both humans. And what authority does he have? That which I've given him. Does Jesus share the name of Yahweh? Yes, he does. Before Abraham was, I am. He is the Yahweh of the Bible. I can show you them talking with each other. Yahweh said to Yahweh in Zechariah and in Genesis 19, the Yahweh on earth rained down fire and brimstone from the Yahweh in heaven. Amen? So he bears the name of Yahweh, but he's not his father. But he's in his father's house with his father's authority. Okay? And the Bible says that makes him greater than Moses. Now, to these folks, how great was Moses? Moses was the greatest prophet. Moses was the greatest leader. Jesus is greater than that one. Now watch what begins to happen. Verse 5, as you're following the point of the author. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. I believe there we're speaking of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The triune God, that was their house. It wasn't just the house of the Father. It was also the house of the Son, was it not? And it wasn't the Holy Spirit there, the Kabod, as the Bible says, the Shekinah, the glory of God. So God, the triune God, made this his house. He dwelt there, even though you couldn't build anything big enough for him, but he chose to make that his resting place. Now, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. And what was the future that Moses was looking forward to? A prophet like him would come. Jesus is that prophet that comes like Moses, and I have the reference there. Jesus is a prophet just like he's an apostle, but he's more than that. He's the son of God equal with the father, but he fulfills the prophecy that Moses gave that he would come. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. God, the Father's house. He is faithful over that house. Once again, can anyone less than God be over God's house according to the Bible? No, because God's name rests in that house. So the Son must share that name. And the name of God from Exodus is Yahweh. Jesus shares in that name. Does the Holy Spirit? Yes, he does. And we learn about those in other, Holy Spirit in other passages. Now look at what it says. And we are his what? How? So we go from the temple to us right now as physical creatures. That is why we should not give our lives to other spirits. They are jealous of God and want to make us their dwelling place. But the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, remember by Jesus in John 14 and 16, says that when the Spirit comes, the Father and Son come with him. They make their abode with us, their home with us. The Bible says that that presence, that abiding presence of God the Father and the Son via the Holy Spirit 
was taken off of the temple at the time of the Babylonian exile. It was removed. Um, Ezekiel sees the removal of the Spirit of God. And notice this. You never hear the Spirit of God coming back to that temple. We mentioned the temple veils renting in two, and now we see as, as that meaning we have access to God. But you never hear that the Spirit was on that place or left that place. Can I hear an amen? Why? Because the Spirit was waiting for Christ when he came upon him as a dove at his baptism, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out on us at the day of Pentecost. Amen? And so the Holy Spirit no longer dwells in that temple. The Holy Spirit is being sent from Christ, proceeding from him on the Father's throne, one throne in heaven, Father and Son share it, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from it. Amen? Amen. That is why we are his house. And no one has that right, no demon or devil, other than God himself, to have authority over you. If you give yourself, and what demon possession is, giving yourself to evil, this is a bastardization, a raping of your spiritual soul. That is why it's so tormenting to those who are demonized and why we cast them out in Jesus' name. Because it is not what you were meant for. You were meant for glory. Hallelujah. You were meant to have the presence of God saturate your being to the point you wouldn't even know you were naked or not because your light bulb on the inside would glow so much. Amen? And so God made us for that, and now through regeneration and the rebirth of our spirits, which were once born separated from God, and then we were sinful in deserving the wrath of God, we are now regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, born of spirit, that which is spirit gives birth to spirit, and now we have God in us. We are in him, and he is in us. We are intertwined with the presence of God, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the evil of this world, as 2 Peter says. Amen? Can that be a non-Christian? Can a non-Christian be the house of God? And we are his house. Can that apply to an ethnic Jew? Of course not. A Jew, simply by ethnicity, is not the house of God. You have to accept Christ to become the house of God. And we are his house. Now look at what it says here. Indeed, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. I want you to remember that verse because I believe that explains the ones, the one rather, that the person tries to say doesn't count towards a Christian losing their salvation, but counts towards their simply being a warning. Like, I'm going to slap you in the next week. Notice how it's phrased here. We are God's house if we hold firmly. So in other words, if we stop holding firmly, we're no longer God's house. Can everybody follow the logic with me, please? Are they God's house according to the scripture right now? We are his house, right? We are. When would we stop being his house if we stopped holding firmly? That's the way you're supposed to read it. You are his house, but now moving forward, there's no guarantee you will be his house because you can stop holding firmly. But if you hold firmly, you're still his house. That's how, I, that's how I translate that, and I'll explain it to you more. Now in verse 7, here's the warning. Somebody say, bring it. Thank you. So as the Holy Spirit says, now the Holy Spirit talks. He's not just a force. He speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks. We've heard the Father speaking up until this point. We've heard the Son speaking. Now we hear from the Holy Spirit, the blessed triune God. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, Whose voice? The Son's voice. The voice that the Father uses to speak. So if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the times of testing in the wilderness. And it goes on to describe the test that happened in Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, when the people of Israel rebelled against Moses because they didn't have water to drink. Which, by the way, when Moses struck that rock, water came out, and the Bible says Christ is that rock. Amen? That's in Corinthians. So Christ was with them, following them. So you can read that. I don't have time to go into all of the scriptures that I put up there for you. Please do that on your own. But here we're told that we're not supposed to do what they did. Now, once again, are we supposed to say that they were not truly Jews? Because it wouldn't be the Christ, uh, the Christian faith they were following. It would be the Jewish faith. Amen. Now, we could say it's, you know, it's the things of God that remain the same in all covenants, but there's a covenant there for these people, okay? And now there's a new covenant in Christ. Would we say, well, they weren't really Jews? If they rebelled, they weren't really Jews. Now, that would be ridiculous. That's not the, I mean, that, that would take away the entire point of the warning. The entire point of the warning was there were real Jews at that time following around Moses. They said they wanted God. They wanted to go to the promised land, and God wanted them to go there, which he wouldn't want an unbeliever to be there. And remember, you couldn't be a part of that group unless you did everything according to the covenant. So it would get very hard to say they were false Jews in this context. And then if they were false Jews, then only Joshua and Caleb would have been real Jews because they're the only ones that made it out, okay? Listen, the obvious context is that there were Jews, that loved God at that time, and they were following Moses, following God, following the scriptures, and what happened to them? Their hearts got hard. They began to rebel. They began to turn away from God. And notice this, the Bible says he was so angry with them that he said, you will never enter my rest. My brothers and sisters, do you see the warning now of verse 12? See to it, brothers and sisters of Metro Praise International. See to it, my brothers and sisters who follow us online, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now do you see the warning? This is how serious it is. God is showing us his nature, Father, Son, Spirit. I know it was a long journey to get to where we're at now, but I just wanted you to see how amazing it is. Jesus is the builder of God's house. Jesus is equal with the Father. Never forget the moments of doctrine about the Trinity in the middle of these messages. They're important to us. But now here comes the rubber in the road. The rubber meets the road right here. Brothers, sisters, don't let this happen to you. Don't let sin take you to unbelief. Notice how it works. Sin leads to an unbelieving heart. I asked you at the beginning, how many of you have sinned as Christians? And we all raised our hands because we have. Does that mean we stopped being Christians? No, because if we asked God for forgiveness and still believed he was our apostle and high priest, we have as much forgiveness as we need. Uh, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, please. We have as much as we need, but when will we get cut off? We'll go to that warning in a moment, but there is a cutoff moment. It's not the sin that will cut you off, though. 
Because sometimes people who say, okay, pastor, you know, like I said, I've been to cemetery, I mean seminary, and I talk to my friends that are there, all these positions, and they go, okay, we get it, man, wow, you've convinced us. Well, then what sin breaks our covenant with God then? I mean, it sounds like the Bible says no one can take you out of his hand, he'll lose none, you know, like what are, you know, nothing separates us from the love of God. First John chapter 2, verse 1, please. How can I sin and lose it? What is it? Is it murder? Is it adultery? It's none of it. None of it. You know what it is? Unbelief. Unbelief. And I can show you in the Bible. Somebody goes, well, show it to me. I will quickly. Saul, he disbelieves in God's word through the prophets. The spirit of God leaves him, and an evil spirit comes to torment him. Did he murder somebody? No. Did he, did he go out and rob, steal, and cheat, and do all of that? No. David does all of that, though, doesn't he? David takes something that doesn't belong to him, has adulterous affair, lies about it, has the man murdered, continues to cover it up. I mean, the multitude of sin that that man committed in that situation. And yet, in Psalm 51, the Spirit of God has still not yet departed him. He's saying, don't take it from me. Because if, if, if you can say, don't take something from me, you must still have it. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Right? But then he says, renew in me a steadfast spirit. So what's the difference between David and Saul? Amounts of sin? Of course not. David's sin was way worse. And there are worse sins in the Bible. All can lead you to hell and deserving of wrath. One is enough. But there are big sins and little sins. Let anybody tell you there's not. I know what they mean by that. All of it needs forgiveness and we're all sinners alike. But there are judgments for certain kinds of sins. Sodom and Gomorrah is a unique place. Egypt got a little bit of punishment. But you don't hear about these other places all getting blown to kingdom come, right? Why? Because they committed certain kinds of sins. Certain kinds of sin get you done like that, right? Like you don't hear about the Chinese empire having hellfire fall on them, right? But you hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, certain kinds of sin deserve punishments. We'll, we'll talk about that. Same, same thing with rewards. Rewards for different works. Not everybody gets the same amount of rewards in heaven, okay? But notice this about David. Sin more in number than Saul. Greater in affecting people. It actually messes with people's lives, like kill somebody, take some, a woman out of a marriage, right? Like every possible way you look at David, he is worse. And yet what happens here? He remains with God. Why? Because he never had unbelief. Saul must have turned to unbelief for him to have the spirit taken from him and to have an evil spirit put upon him. And then we see it play out by him going to a witch. He'd rather go to a witch than to meet with God. What does 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 say? My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. That's the command. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Everybody go, yay, forgiveness. Now go to the, the unforgivable sin in 1 John. Go all the way down to chapter 5. So after he just told you, hey, guys, you all can be forgiven. Everybody can be forgiven. All sins forgiven. Yeah, we get all kinds of forgiveness in, in, in Jesus. Yeah, I can be forgiven of everything. Well, let me be a little bit clear about what you can and cannot be forgiven of. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, we are born spiritually dead, right? According to Ephesians, I believe that's talking about a spiritual death. Not like literal death, because otherwise, if they're already dead, how can you pray for them anyway, right? So follow the thought here. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to what I would say spiritual death, like the Ephesians kind of death, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. So if you see a brother and sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, 
You should pray, and God will give them life. In other words, they confess before you and God. We're not preached, but the Bible says confess sins one to another, not just to Father Tom in a dark secret. Confession is a part of our healing. Amen? So you can see them, that they've sinned, they come to you, there's confession, there's prayer, God gives them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. I'm not saying you pray about that. And then he says, all wrongdoing is sin, yep, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. And there is sin that does not lead to death. So all wrongdoing is sin. But according to John, there are sins that lead to death or a sin that leads to death. Does everybody see that? What is the sin that leads to death that I'm not supposed to pray about? That's your unbelief towards God. I cannot pray that that is forgiven. So you come to me and say, I don't believe in God anymore. I can't say, well, let's pray about that and ask him to forgive you. I can't do that. Do you get that? Otherwise, you interpret that and email it to me. Info at mpichurch.org. I'm serious. A lot of times people are like, I don't know if I'll go there with you. Well, interpret it then. You go for it. Go get 20 commentaries. Go read it all. Get the Greek, whatever. Look at What do you think it's talking about? I think it's very serious here. It's basically saying in our vernacular, if you see somebody sin that hasn't backslid, pray for them. Let God restore them. Let God forgive them. But if you see somebody who's backslidden, don't let, don't let them think they get forgiveness for that because they don't. And by the way, all wrongdoing is sin, and there's sin that doesn't lead to death. So, that, you know, you can be forgiven of those sins. But if this one right here that does lead to death, you can't pray that they get forgiven. You can only pray that they repent as to be forgiven. But you cannot pray that God forgives a sinner in their rebellion. You see how dangerous rebellion is? Going back to the warning of Hebrews, thank you for your patience. I hope that I can finish this in about an hour. Is everybody good with that? Because we're going to, you, had to, you, 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 you got an hour, now you got to give an hour. Amen. <laughs> That's not funny, Pastor. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing me like that, Pastor? I'm just going to walk out of here. No one said I had to stay here. You're right. You could. You could leave any time. But I appreciate you staying. Notice what he says to them. See to it, verse 12, brothers and sisters, that none of you, none of you who are here, including me, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. Couldn't be sinners because aren't sinners already away from God. This is a saint who's already facing God. Now to have a hard heart and turn away and watch it. Here it is in closing, verse 13. But encourage one another. Here we go. I'm encouraging you. I can, can I encourage a sinner in this way? No, of course not. I encourage you, a brother or sister, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Are you guys ready for Skelleruno? Skelleruno? <laughs> Click on that link, please. Anybody ever heard of sclerosis? That's where they get a lot of medical terms come from the Greek. I'm going to teach you about a medical condition known as arthiosclerosis. And if I have mispronounced that, please forgive me. Arthiosclerosis. These plaques cause the arteries, where you get the word arthio or arteo from, to harden and narrow, restricting the blood flow and oxygen supply to vital organs and increasing the risk of blood clots that could potentially block the flow of blood to the heart or brain. That'll preach. Are you guys ready for the message now? Honestly, that was just the introduction. I wish I could preach. 
Can I preach about you not having a hard heart today? About you not allowing sin to become a plaque in your life that builds up over time until it clogs and stops the flow of God moving in your life? Not that God couldn't break it down, but he would have to come against your choice. And God gives you a choice of whom you will serve. So as long as God gives you choice, he'll allow, think about this, the new heart of flesh he's given you to turn to stone if you don't heed this warning. And so when you talk about what does rebellion look like, rebellion doesn't look like us just worshiping Satan today, putting 6-6 on our head and twerking on the devil like little Nas did. I got some of your attention on that. Pastor, be aware of the culture every now and then. That dude for sure needs Jesus. Yeah, okay, well, we all need Jesus, right? But yeah, that one for sure. Okay, but guess what? You can have a hard heart too right now. You know how? By you stop listening to what God says. God speaks to you. He says, turn off that show. Go into prayer. Break off that relationship. Budget your money this way. Choose this career path. These kinds of things are meant to be obeyed. We are supposed to listen to God's word as it comes from the black and white of Scripture and follow the steps of the Spirit. You're supposed to not commit adultery, but wait for the one that the Lord gives you. Not live in fornication and uncleanness. Pornography is not your friend. Even Billie Eilish says it destroyed her brain, gentlemen. It eats out your soul from the inside out. This world is full of poison. And yet, like the Bible says, it's temporary pleasures deceive us. And I am there with you. I am deceived by sin's temporary pleasure so often that I have to confess and ask the Lord to forgive me. Thank God he's freed me from pornography and those things since the 90s. But I'm here to testify to you that all sin leads to death. Even the ones you think are small. Even the ones that you compromise on and say, well, it really doesn't matter. We're getting married anyway. You know how many times I've heard sinners, I mean Christians, say that? Well, pastor, we're getting married. and It's still sin. Do you fear God? If you fear God, get the sin out in Jesus' name. This is a generation. Look at this church, mostly young adults, and I thank God for the other gray-haired people. Otherwise, I'd feel alone up in here. But this is a generation that needs to hear this. Sin is not your friend. It is a plaque to your arteries. It's not that God is keeping you away from the fun of living like RuPaul or Caitlyn Jenner. It is clogging their arteries. And any who have ever known God and they turn towards these things, their outcome will be the same. You see, it didn't matter in the time of Israel whether you were rebellious for this reason or rebellious for that reason. All rebels died in that wilderness. And if you don't think God is serious, look again at Hebrews 3. In his anger, he swore and he kept it. Young people, if mom and dad swear, it's a certain kind of time of the day. And if they swear and they keep it, you know they're serious. Now, I don't mean swearing as in cussing and being all crazy, but he made a promise. You're not going to the promised land. Sometimes I have to tell my children, you will not stay up late and have ice cream. And sometimes we give in and change our mind. Listen, God did not change his mind. Every one of them. 
except Joshua and Caleb died in that desert. I, I, you know, I talk to people all the time, and, and, they, and they think our God's a joke. They think God's like, you know, uh, Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby, little baby Jesus, I pray little baby Jesus. That is an idol. Get rid of that. Because that is not coming down on Judgment Day. The God that is going to judge us is the same one who said, I've had it with you. None of you are going into the promised land. And God sat on his throne and counted down the time for every person to die before he said, Joshua and Caleb, now you boys can go on in. And you might say, well, what about Moses? Do you know? That the second time that he struck the rock, he did it out of anger. And then God said to Moses, you're not going in either. Do you know that I could miss heaven and you make it? Don't think because I'm, a, what, a foot up or six inches on this pulpit that my heart's any different than yours. Now, thank God, I think Moses still made it into heaven, but he lost that temporary blessing. Brothers and sisters, sin is a lie. It comes from the devil who is a liar. Today is your day. If you are listening to me and you are in sin, any kind of sin, it doesn't matter big or small, repent of it and ask Jesus Christ to cleanse you. Get it out of your heart because it will harden you. Yes, you can say, well, 1 John says I can keep asking for forgiveness. That's 1 John 2. Read 1 John 5 because there is a sin you can eventually sin out of unbelief. That takes that life from you. And how does the Bible describe it? It describes it as shipwrecking your faith. The Bible describes it as spiritual adultery, playing the whore with the devil. The Bible describes it as being cut off from the vine and being thrown into the fire. The Bible considers it as a prodigal son that is now dead to the father, eating pig slop. There are many examples of this in Scripture to the point where it puts the fear of God in me even as I preach it now. Brother... Uh, uh, Daryl, would you come please in closing? Look at these last verses. We have, verse 14, come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And this is where they make their point. But remember, those who say it's only a threat but never really done, but remember what we read in the verses prior where it says it a little bit differently. It says we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction. So it almost sounds like you don't know if you really came into Christ if you don't make it to the end. I don't think that's being true because he's already said earlier, you are the house of God. So even though it may sound like you don't know you're a Christian until you make it to the end, I think it's using the same language of the previous verse. And so that's why I settle this to say it's not an empty threat, even based on that scripture, because he continues right on and says, as has just been said if we were not supposed to take this as a literal threat why would he now repeat himself as has just been said today if you hear his voice if you are here today brothers and sisters and you are a Christian remember the sheep know his voice and another voice they do not beckon to if you're here and you're hearing God's voice do not harden your heart as they did in rebellion. I cannot put that any more clear than the scripture. If you're hearing God's voice, there are Christians here today. I know you are hearing God's voice and you are in a tug of war with God. You are not a sinner. You know Jesus. You know his voice. And yet you are sinning. 
and you think that God is going to do you different than he did the Jews, his very own people, and he won't. Not only does it apply to them, it applies to everyone because where is our promised land? Our promised land is the kingdom of God. And so just as they could not go to the kingdom, uh, to the promised land, we will not go to the promised land, uh, to, the, to heaven. Imagine being around at that time and trying to file a complaint to God. He said, what? No one's going? Oh, no, he didn't. Dear God, I wasn't there that day when everybody got upset. And you know what? I don't really appreciate that you would generalize me with everybody else. And I just want to make sure you know that it's not my fault. And I'm, I want to go with Joshua and Caleb. And I know that you're going to do it because you're a good God. And you always love me. And I'm your favorite. Sign Karen. Sign Karen. Take that, God. File your complaint. Yeah. What do you think God said to Karen that day? No, I didn't change it. I swore it and I ain't changing. Parents, if you say something, keep it. Let me just apply that. If you say your kids lost their treats for a week, keep it a week because they need to learn to fear God because God doesn't change. Well, what about grace and forgiveness? They learn it in that week. I don't think every one of those people who died in the wilderness went to hell. I think a lot of them learned from the sternness of God. If this is the way it goes with the promised land, we better get right with him before we die. Otherwise, we're not going to that promised land. We're not going to heaven. If you teach your kids that there's always a compromise, that there's always a bending of the rules, you're not teaching them the things about God. That's why we need to pray for true governors and leaders and godly uh, military and police and leaders in this nation because if we just keep letting everybody get away with stuff, no man will fear God and they'll do whatever they're doing now. Now he's very clear here. Who were they? Uh, who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not those led by Moses? Who, who will be some of those that say, did we not do all of these things in your name? And then he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, it says there he never knew them. He never knew them in the sense that he knows us. But they did have a relationship. The born-again believer who makes it to heaven will have a different kind of relationship with God on that day that we will know him in a way they didn't. There is a holding to the end here. But if you look at Ezekiel, it says, tell the righteous person this. If you stop doing righteousness, this is Ezekiel 3, and you turn to wickedness, you will perish, and the righteous things you did will no longer be remembered. That's the context of him saying, I never knew you. Not in the way that he knows those who finished the race. Amen? Was it not all those Moses let out? With whom was he angry for those years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished? And to whom will God, uh, did God swear that they would never enter his rest? It was those who disobeyed. Highlight it, please, in closing. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their homosexuality. No. Because of their pornography. No because of their abortions. No. All of that can be forgiven, can it not? But because of their unbelief. The heart that keeps sinning will eventually turn towards unbelief. And that sin will not be forgiven. We'll get to Hebrews 10 where it says, for that to happen, because some people think, well, on Judgment Day, can I make it right then and have a talk with him? No, the Bible says on that day for him to do that, he would have to send Christ to die all over again. He would have to die again. 
because the sacrifice you have is for this life, not a second life or a second chance. This is your second chance. This is it. That's why he said continually, today, today, today. If you hear his voice, today. Tomorrow is only in the fool's calendar. This is our chance. This is our day. And I say this with all humility. I have watched my friends harden their heart and turn against God, even pastors and backslide. And today, if they were to die, they would go to hell because there is no more forgiveness of sins for them. Hebrews 10, we'll get to that warning. It gets even harsher than this in one sense. More reality comes forth to this. But God, help us, right? Like, that's my prayers. Lord, help me not be that. Well, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid, you know, well, I don't ever sin. Okay, that's the... That's easier said than done at times, right? Well, here's the solution to even when you sin. Believe that God forgives to transform. If you're ever finding yourself praying for forgiveness, but you don't want the transformation, you're not really asking for real forgiveness. Real forgiveness is not just forgiveness of sin, but the power not to sin. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into what? Temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how you know you will never have to fear this. Because there is a security for the believer, and that's why it said it twice. If you hold on, this will not happen to you. Well, and I heard some people say, you know, God bless their hearts, dear hearts. Well, what if I get so weak I can't hold on? No, the Bible doesn't say that's ever a scenario. In your weakness, the Bible says his grace is made perfect for you. His power is in your weakness. There is no person that will ever be there on judgment going, a judgment day, sentenced to hell going, oh, but I tried and I just couldn't. No, no, God will say, liar, liar. You didn't ask me to deliver you from that temptation. You didn't fall into it. You put on the Speedo cap and the Speedos, got on the diving board, jumped in, checked the water, did a backflip, and went right into that sin. And I was there shouting the whole time, don't do it. God will expose that. But to those who deal with condemnation, Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So here's the line that we walk, avoiding those two ditches so that we can heed the warning. We don't sin on purpose so that grace keeps abounding and we test we test the grace of God to see how much we can get away with and at the same time we avoid condemnation self-deception to feel like if I'm not working hard enough I'm not going to heaven and I might just lose it because I just lost my phone and my world's falling apart I don't want to go to hell we stay right on the path of God's truth and His grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. If I sin, there's forgiveness. But the truth is, I don't have to keep sinning and He'll make a way out of my temptation. Amen? Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus today. Woo! Hallelujah! Band and altar workers, would you come please? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you check our hearts and to do a heart scan right now and to see if there's any...